We're in, a, uh, we're in a series on the great commandment, which is love the Lord your God uh, out of Mark, if you guys want to turn there with me. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, mind and strength. So turn to chapter 12 of Mark, and we'll just read it real quick. It's in the Gospels in several places, and in Mark it's in chapter 12, beginning in verse 28. And it says this, one of the teachers of the law came and, and heard them all debating. And noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one answered Jesus is this, and he's quoting out of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And then he switches here and quotes from Leviticus chapter 19 and says this. Now the second is, which wasn't the question if you remember, right? So Jesus is inserting something that he feels is important and that normally gets left out if we say this is the most important, this is all that matters, and we kind of move forward that way. And Jesus is saying, no, I need to bring this in and couple it. He says the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. And there is no commandment greater than these. So both of these are in a circle. Nothing else is greater than these, kind of jumps uh, the place of priority into the circle. These two go together. And if you look at Jesus' whole ministry, as he talks to the religious leaders, he's often trying to point out to them that you think you have this one, and because you don't have the second one, or you don't understand the second one, you really actually miss the first one. And so uh, the Pharisees are doing all these things, and Jesus says, now, that's great that you're doing that, but you're, you're neglecting the weightier matters of the law, like mercy in, in the people. And Isaiah 58 um, talks about how worship has to be cu- coupled with the actions and, and the spirit and the heart of going out and being able to do justice with our fellow man. And so Jesus combines these two. So we're in this series to look at kind of this commandment uh, that Jesus says is the greatest commandment. And uh, it's interesting because it breaks out, if you're kind of American and, and you think in terms of categories or lists, it, it breaks out really cleanly as a list. And love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And I mean, it just it's a great bullet point list, isn't it? Well, I kind of, in, the more I'm thinking about it and the more I've been kind of prepping for this series, realize that I think the list or breaking that into a list actually distorts or gets in the way of what I think is really going on with the Great Commandment. Um, what's really going on with the Great Commandment is you can almost see it most with one simple little word, and it's, it's the word all, with all. And I think that word all is then modified or kind of um, flowered out by the different aspects of the person at the core of who we are. So the whole idea is love the Lord your God with everything, with all that you are, um, all that you can be, all that you have, just with everything, which means love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. But the real idea here is just this totality of our service, of our submission, of our faith, of our adoration for God, that he becomes higher than everything else, kind of like the song we sung earlier. And so uh, that's kind of where I've been thinking, is this whole idea of all. And Tamara and I started watching a, a HBO miniseries. Maybe you've watched it, but it's called The Pacific. It was kind of the follow-up to Band of Brothers. So I don't know if you guys watched that. But I was watching The Pacific, and... Um, I don't know if anyone else is like this, but when I was in high school and I used to watch the Vietnam movies, right? So it was, there's a lot of Vietnam War movies that came out in the late 80s. And then there was a, a TV show called Tour of Duty. You guys remember that? And it started with um, Paint It Black by the Rolling Stones. Does anyone remember this? Yeah. And whenever that song would come on and the helicopters, it'd be like, I still hear that song now. Like, if I hear the Rolling Stones play that, it's like, yeah. You know, like, um, all the high school testosterone comes back and, and I want to go 
do something. I don't know. Uh, but I, in high school, I used to think this is this is my um, both my naivete and also why recruitment officers go after high school kids, right? When I was in high school, I used to watch these Vietnam shows. I used to think, man, I, I missed my calling. I was supposed to have been born back there, and I, I was supposed to have gone to the war. You know, like I actually felt that way. And now I think I'm a little bit smarter, and I'm like, no, I, that would have been, I, I don't miss that. You know what I mean? Like, that's not something I should have gone. But so watching the Pacific, it's like all those same feelings come back again. I'm like, I should be on a ship with the Marines and the camaraderie and you know, the singularity of purpose, it's like you know your enemy, and your enemy's in front of you, and you don't have 50, you know, to-do list items, you know, that, that plague your day, and you just always, like, running to keep up. It's like, no, this is who you are, you know who's on your left, you know who's on your right, and you know what your mission is, and it's tough, but, you know, you can focus. And, and so we're watching this literally last night, and I'm just like, man, I just want to go be on a ship with a bunch of guys, <laughs> like... And simplify my life, just one thing, and, and not have like all these things that, that I'm trying to keep in the air. And, and, uh, and, it, and the principle kind of came to me. I'm like, you know, uh, wartime is a lot more simple than peacetime. Wartime, in terms of what's most important or what's most dominant or, or where your attention's at, it's a, it's a lot more focused than peacetime. Peacetime, you don't know what you're supposed to do. There's really no right thing or wrong thing. You don't know really who's on your team, who's not on your team, or, or you're all playing different games. It's like, I got my agenda in peacetime. You got your agenda. We kind of go separate ways. And, and so it's an interesting thing about peacetime versus wartime that there's just a, a different kind of focus. And I think that's really... I think that's really what I'm struggling with in this passage. My, I, I found myself, I haven't thought about this since I was in uh, junior high. Last time my mom told me where I got my name, I think it was junior high. But I'm named after her uncle, Kenny, who followed the tanks all the way from the beaches of Normandy into Germany. And because of the exhaust, developed health issues and ended up passing away at a young age. And so that's where I got my name. I haven't heard it, I think, since junior high. So I'm watching the Pacific, and I'm, you know, thinking about all this. I'm just like, I just hunger for, a, a, like, a, a purpose and a center of gravity that's clear and distinct and that I can just embrace with the totality of my being. And I think that's what we're being called to in this passage, that that's, that is what we've been made for. And life doesn't do that for us. It doesn't doesn't bring it together. It doesn't frame it for us. Um, but that's what we were created for. We were created to worship God. We were created to glorify God. We were created for God to be at the center of our purpose in life, our calling in life, how we leverage our time and our thoughts and our actions. And it was supposed to be like that. It's not easy. And that's why the great word in the Old Testament is how we forget and we're called back to remember. But the idea is really life is supposed to be that simple, revolving around that one thing that then informs everything else. And so when we're talking about this series, I think the temptation, again, to make it list is to say heart, soul, mind, strength. Well, the heart means emotions. You know, And then the mind, therefore, must be, uh, be kind of your, your reason or your rationality. Like, so it's, it's love the, the Lord your God with all your feelings and emotion with heart and with all your like, intellect with mind. And so many of you probably, well, you guys probably forgot, but the ones that remembered we were going to be talking about mind today probably stayed home. They're like, I don't want to go hear a sermon on how I should read more books develop my mind more, and, and uh, I should be learning Greek because that's the language of the Bible, and I should, be, you know what I mean? Like it's, uh, the sermons I've always heard on love the Lord your God with all your mind are all about developing the intellect and increasing rationality, and you walk out going, oh my gosh, I got to study, I got to do homework, but I'm in my 40s, like, you know, <laughs> I feel like I'm back in school, and it's not that intellect is bad. Uh, it's not that rationality is bad. It's not that 
uh, learning the original languages of the Bible or how to study the Bible would be bad. Um, those things are good. Proverbs talks about pursuing wisdom and knowledge and understanding. But that's not what's meant here. And so the first thing I want to do is just blow up this distinction between reason and emotion. This kind of uh, Western idea we have of the heart and the mind being these two separate realities. Because the, uh, the scriptures speak of them much more in terms of um, dual aspects of a singular reality, which is from the heart. Um, the heart is the wellspring of life. Everything comes from it. That's what it says in Proverbs 4. So the heart isn't just your emotions. The heart is the core of who you are. And synonymous with that is the mind in Scripture. So let me read some verses to you here. This is Psalm 7. A righteous God who searches minds and hearts, bring an end to the violence of the wicked and make the righteous secure. Who searches minds and hearts. Isaiah 46. Remember this. Fix it in mind and take it to heart. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 10. The Lord I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind. So it's, it, they're both realities and synonymous. I'm searching, which means I'm looking into and seeing what's there, what resides at the core of you. It's not I'm, I'm measuring your emotions and checking your intellect. It's I'm, I'm peering deep into you, your heart and your mind, your soul, and I'm seeing what is there. I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward a man according to his conduct, according to what deeds he deserves. Acts 4.32. All the believers were one in heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of the possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. So the, the book of Acts talking about um, the unity of the early church, and it's saying they're one in heart and mind, meaning the core of of one person matched and was in harmony with the core of another per person so that when you put them all together, you could say they actually had, literally had supervenient on all these individuals was this collective mind and collective heart, this core of the community that, that held values to it. It's not just emotions and intellect. It's not just capacities. It's, it's the core that houses the realities of the individual and the community. That's Acts chapter 4 and Philippians 4, 7. And the peace of God, this is talking about committing everything to the Lord in prayer. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Is it going to guard your intellect? <laughs> I mean, it, it might guard your emotions, but it's really saying the core of who you are, the core that, that has concerns, the core that has feelings, the core that has fears and doubts, the core that wants to be faithful to God, this, this, this centering of yourself and the seat of emotions, that will be guarded by God when we commit our kind of concerns to Him in our anxious thoughts and prayer. Hebrews talks about it too. It says, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. I'll put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. In other words, the core of who you are is going to have inscribed on it what God would desire or command of us. It's not, I'm going to write into your emotions or your feelings or I'm going to inscribe into your intellectual capacity. It's, it's like, no, the core of who you are, your heart and your mind, is going to have this imprint, this, this uh, understanding, if you will, of what God's purposes are and what his laws are and what his will for your life is. And then in Revelation, we see the same thing. Revelation says this, chapter 2, verse 23, I will strike her children dead. I could have left that part off. There's no context to it. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each according to your deeds. So how are we supposed to understand this idea of love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Well, the scriptures really think that heart 
and mind are synonymous, that they're kind of the same reality. So I'll put it to you this way. I think the best way to understand this is that with my volition, with my choice, with my intentionality, with my decision-making, with all that would reach out with me to love the Lord, my God, with my mind, the fullness of my mind, that I would, with volition, choice, and intention, and everything I have, prioritize Him. Daniel, which is, frankly, the last time you see the word mind show up in the Old Testament. I mean, it's not a word that's commonly used in Scripture. Daniel, this is the last time you see the word mind in the Old Testament, says this, You who are highly esteemed, consider carefully the words I'm about to speak to you and stand up, for I have now been sent to you. This is the angel coming to Daniel. And when he said this to me, I stood up trembling, and then he continued, Do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God. Your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. I mean, just look at the intentionality there. Since the first day that you set your mind, you, you volitionally, in, intentionally chose to frame your mind towards God, and then listen to the way ah, it's modified. To, to gain understanding, and to humble yourself before God. So the idea is not Daniel's intellect. The idea here is God and the position that God occupies as Daniel is choosing to orient himself to God, choosing to sit at the feet of God, to gain understanding about God and how that affects everything in life, and to do it from a position of humility, saying, this is the dominant reality this is the sole focus. I know what my enemy is. I know what my goal is. I know who's on the left. I know who's on the right. I know what my life is aimed about. It's not just 50 balls in the air that I'm trying to juggle. And the angel says, this is why I've been sent because of this. And God has heard your words. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 14 through 15 say this, For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays. But my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my mind. And I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my mind. And this is a passage where Paul is talking about um, speaking in tongues or different languages or praying in in different languages or even just groans. And have you ever um, groaned in prayer because you just couldn't find the words? You know, the, the, the sound ug actually means a lot. You know what I mean by that? Ugh. I mean, it's, it's not the way it sounds when I say it, but like if you bury your face in the couch and there's so much pain and you just don't know where to go and you just go, ah, God. Do you know that God knows what that ugh means? It, there's, there's a reality to that, isn't there? And so whether it's a deep emotional reality, whether it's actually a prayer language, whatever it is, there's something that gets communicated, but it's, it's this raw emotion. And Paul is saying, that's great, but I also want to pray with my decision-making and my volition and, and my choice, and I want to I pray in such a way that I'm committing things and that I'm searching things out and that I can understand how to orient myself around God and understand Him more and position myself in humility and that it takes both of these. And so Paul says, I will pray with my spirit and with my mind, the full core of my being. Luke 21, verses 13 through 15 But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you the words and the wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. There's a verse in Matthew that's very similar. Matthew chapter 19 says this. uh, When you are arrested and taken before the magistrates, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. For at that time you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of my Father speaking through you. And if you've ever wondered what to say to somebody, 
how are you going to talk to that loved one or the relative? Or what are you going to do at the workplace or in the fraternity house when someone comes and talks to you? If you really are surrendered to God, if your life is really oriented around God, if the whole purpose of your being is to be a witness for God or to be faithful so that he can use you as a witness, the command is not to worry because God will honor that. God will speak through you even if you don't have the wisdom or the eloquence or anything else at the right time. God will grant and gift you what to say and not only what to say, but how to say it. It's an unbelievable promise. Somebody gave me that. The, the, I was up at this Christian summer camp. I was a baby believer, and they gave me this opportunity to speak to these junior high kids. And I was terrified. I stayed up for two weeks reading all these books and taking all these notes. And before I got up to talk, and, and it was interesting, I began, I'd begun to use this talk to these junior high kids as a litmus test because I'd felt like God was trying to lead me to give my whole life to him and to just go a whole different direction. I didn't know what to do with that. I'm like, God, if I talk to these junior high kids and they actually hear something I'm saying, if it actually makes some kind of difference, then okay. I'll, I'll go to seminary and I'll, I'll, I'll become a pastor and I'll, I'll do that whole drill. But, but you got to like show me something. I was, so there's all this like going on with this talk. And, and right before I was to go up and talk, uh, this guy pulled me aside and he read that verse to me, Matthew 19. And, uh, and it was life-changing to me. And so I went in and took a 15-minute message and it ended up being an hour and like 20 minutes about evidences for the resurrection of Jesus. And um, <laughs> it's partly true. Uh, and my life has been different every day since that day because I came out of there trusting that God could use me if I was fully surrendered to him and that I didn't need to worry about it. So here's Jesus saying the same thing, that he wants us to make up our mind not to worry. He's not talking about our emotions and he's not talking about your IQ. Jesus is saying, listen, I want, you're made in the image of God. You're made in the image of God, and I want you to double down and choose now what's going to happen to you later. That, that you're going to frame your mind so that whatever comes your way, you're already predisposed to handle it in a certain kind of way, meaning you're not going to react to it from a human standpoint. You're going to respond to it out of faith, knowing that God has made a promise to you that if you are his and you are following him, that he will take care of you, that he will provide what you need, and you will be able to be a witness for him. And Jesus is saying, I want you to make up your mind. I want you to take your volition, your intentionality, your choice, your decision-making faculties, and I want you to train them on this and then cement that so that it lasts through time, so that you've already committed this day who you're going to serve in, the, in that day. And uh, that's a powerful thing. It's a powerful thing. Romans Chapter 14, verse 13, Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. The whole verse in Acts I read earlier about being of one mind and one heart. We've got... I, we've got to stop beating up on the church. Like, we can beat up on, on the humans in church. We can beat up on our mistakes. I was, uh, someone was talking about, I was meeting with a couple, and they were talking about what it was like once upon a time when they did, like, a senior send-off. You know, and churches do that, right? Um, send the seniors kind of off to college, and, um, and it, it didn't, didn't quite go well for, for this individual. And I started thinking about that driving home, and I was like, you know what? I've never gotten to talk at a senior send-off, but I think I know what I would say. And what I'd say is I, I think I'd get up and I'd say, um, look at all these seniors and their parents and say, listen, the, the first and the only thing you need to know is I'm sorry 
I'm sorry. Because there are things I'm sure we've done that were not perfect. I'm, things, I'm sure there's things that you were taught somewhere along the line in high school or high school group that might not have been accurate. I'm sure that you've been wounded by other Christians or high school kids that are Christians or, or young leaders who themselves are, are, are trying to grow up into Christ and, and might not have been able to protect you or nurture you maybe the way you needed. But I guarantee you or I know or I'm willing to admit that somehow, some way, um, you're going to recognize a, a degree of woundedness that happened while you were here at this church. And I just want you to know, I'm sorry. We're not perfect. I think and I hope we did the best we could. And I hope that you'll be able to take the good and any of the bad know that that's not intended. And I hope that you'll be able to come back. We can have a conversation someday or that you would find somebody else wherever you go and that God could work with somebody mature in your life to redeem the parts or the areas where church might have hurt you. Instances of spiritual abuse or disappointment. I pray for that. Um, I think that's what I would say. Something along those lines. It's just, I'm sorry. Because we've all been victims of, of church abuse. All of us. I mean, Antioch, I think the first three years, that's the only people that came were, were beat up people. And it was wonderful. They would come in. I used to run this ministry and that ministry and tithe all my money to that last church. I was so bought in. Um, and then I got really beat up, so I'm here to heal. And so I'm not going to get involved in ministry. I'm not going to do anything. I don't really don't know about tithing anymore, but I'm really here to heal. And I would just look at those people and say, that's so wonderful. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm like reliving. Um, but wouldn't one of you help? <laughs> Would, just like in the nursery at least, you know? And, um, and at least tithe enough to where like, if this was a movie you were going to and maybe dinner and a day, like at least. Um, but my point is, is we, we've, all, we've all felt that sting, right? So because of that, because the church is like your mom when you're a junior high kid, you, you take all the benefits and then heap all the abuse, right? Uh, like a mom when you, with, with a junior high son, you know. Um, you know what I'm talking about. Kind of? Okay. Um, so we all take the benefits, but, but the church doesn't really have any defenders. Have you noticed that? On talk radio or in the songs or people's testimonies? Or it's, the, it's, the, it's the okay thing to use the church as the, the whipping thing and to beat up on. Um, but, but the church needs defenders. The idea of the church, even if it's flawed, is better than the idea of not the church. See, that's what nobody realizes. Like us together in our brokenness, wounding each other, uh, or, or being messy, is better than us being messy and broken and not together and devouring one another. By being together, it forces communication. It forces interaction. It forces collaboration. It forces an agenda, a united agenda, that's higher than one individual piece of the whole. And the church needs defenders, and we've got to start saying, look, the church is God's plan. We've got to figure out how to do it better. The bad part of the church isn't God's idea of the church. The bad part of the church is us living it out. So stop beating up on the church and we need to start taking our, our responsibility and say, what's wrong with the church? Well, I am. What, what would make the church better? Me. If, if I maybe did a little bit better of a job or served or didn't try to make the church always meet my ends. You know what I'm saying? Like the church is an idea of God's. It's a good idea and it needs more defenders. And the crazy thing here is that we... We're supposed to make up our mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in each other's way. 
That also means making up my mind not to beat up on church because you know what? It might make me sound really cool and it might make me look really cool, but there's a lot of people in Bend, Oregon that need to go to church. And if I keep beating up on it and making it this kind of laughable thing that we all take advantage of and nobody really needs to go because there's no gravitas to it, guess what I've just done to somebody who actually needs to go to church? I've created a circumstance that is not to their benefit. And if I begin to make everything about my cool games or what works for me, little by little, I'm going to put stumbling blocks in front of other people. If I'm going at it with what works for my heart and my mind alone, and I'm going to try and maximize that, maximize that or, or, or invest into that or nurture that, and I have no regard to what a collective mind or heart would be that we could unite around, then I'm going to slowly put stumbling blocks in front of other people because I'm not paying attention to what you really need. And Paul says, make up your mind. Loving the Lord your God with all of your mind and your intentionality and your forethought would mean that somehow a collective spirit and heart and mind that can unite us is something I'm supposed to think about and prioritize and choose. Because if I don't choose it, I'll default to myself, won't I? Ephesians 4.22, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires and to be, na- uh, to be made new in the attitude of your mind and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. You've been taught to put off the old and, and then to be made new in the attitude of your mind. So it's like a framework, almost a worldview, a, a, a perception, a grid, a paradigm of the mind that's going to be in alignment with this new reality, this new creation that I am. One of the most life-changing things I ever read, you might have heard me uh, refer to it before, but Chuck Swindoll wrote this little thing called Attitude. So I was working in this manufacturing plant in Green, uh, Greenwood, South Carolina. <laughs> if you ever, yeah, don't get me started on Greenwood, South Carolina, right? So this manufacturing plant, Schlumberger, manufactured flow meters, and I'm an intern. And I'm trying to get my, myself sorted out, and, and it's that, that season of my life right there at age 22. And they had this thing framed of Chuck Swindoll's. I didn't really know who Chuck Swindoll was, but they had this thing framed of Chuck Swindoll on attitude. And I would pass it going onto the manufacturing floor, you know, right next to put your safety glasses on. Here was attitude. And, and I began to, so I'm, I'm reading my Bible at night, and then I'm reading this thing kind of every day. I'm like, man, that thing's unbelievable. And it was, uh, it talked about attitude. And this one phrase, and it says, you know, um, Chuck Swindoll says, I'm convinced that life is um, 10% what happens to you and 90% how you choose to react to it. Life is about our attitude. 10% what happens to you and 90% how you react to it. So I went back up to Clemson for a football game one of those weeks that I I was meditating on this attitude thing. I ended up, um, my mom bought me stationery with this on it. So for like years I had this Chuck Swindoll stationery with this attitude poem. And I met Chuck Swindoll once and I was like, hey, you wrote this thing on attitude once. And it changed my life. He says, you know what's really funny? He goes, in all my books I've written, he goes, I hear more about that little paragraph on attitude than I do any of my books, you know. Um, but so I went up to Clemson one weekend, and, and uh, I'm with my old uh, fraternity friends and things like that, and my car got towed. Because at Clemson, like, you park your car anywhere on a game weekend, it's going to get towed. Like, you just say goodbye to your car. Um, but it's like $100 to get out. And when you're in college, $100 to get your car out of being towed, I mean, you know, it's crazy, right? So my, I would go to find my car, and it's not there. And I'm with a couple of my friends. And I'm like, I'm, you know, they're all like, oh, no. You know, it must have gotten towed. I'm like, no worries. It's all good. I'm like, what do you mean? Ah, it's all good. You know, that stuff happens. And they looked at me like, what's wrong with you? You know, and, and then they kind of looked at each other because the, the reputation was, you know, Weitzman went and got religious, you know, and, um, and uh, 
And so I was this crazy thing, renewing my mind. I mean, renewing my mind about what kind of attitude I'm going to have in terms of, of life and how to respond to it and, and choosing a disposition that says, I'm not in control of what happens to me. And frankly, half of the bad stuff that happens to me, God's in it and he's going to use it. That's what Paul talked about, right? I have this thorn in the flesh, this, this ailment, this trial. I prayed about it. God didn't take it away. Prayed about it. God didn't take it away. Okay, that's okay. I'll, I'll choose to accept this because when I am weak, then I am strong. I stay close to you, God, the more I need you. I stay close to you the more I'm broken and hungry and and in some sense, needy and, and tired and overwhelmed. And, and I will look to you for strength and I will get your grace to continue on and to do your will. And so Paul says, you know what? I'm going to accept this burden and I'm going I'm to let God redeem it in my life. And I think about some of the things I pray about, you know. I mean, what would that look like if it was written in Scripture? And then on the 1,596th time I prayed about this ailment, you know what I mean? Like, I, I, don't, I don't ever accept something wrong. I'm American. Nothing's supposed to be wrong, right? It's, it's, everything's fixable. God, aren't you big enough? Like, the, if, if this was really right, when, I'm, when I can finally stop and relax, it's because everything's set. We all, aim, as, I mean, we all aim for that, don't we? Our prayer list is the five things that ought not be that, Life would be better if, if they weren't. And we always are there. And, and so Paul teaches us, like, no, you know what? Half of the things that come at me, if I have the right frame of mind, I can accept them in faith and let God work through that or even redeem it so that somehow, some way, I'm leaning harder into God than I would otherwise. And I'm even a little bit more tender to other people in suffering than I would be had I not been suffering myself. One of the most profound things ever said at Antioch was when Ken, uh, Ken Hutcherson came down from Seattle. I don't know if you guys remember this. And uh, Ken was a linebacker. I'm, I'm pretty sure it was a linebacker um, in the NFL. And uh, he was coming off of literally a decade of cancer and had just finished a, a round of chemo and was so weak that... Um, it was the most... It was, the, it was his only trip that he'd done you know, I think during that whole cycle of chemo, and you could see it as he walked up to stage. Uh, and yet he came down uh, in honor to a relationship with somebody he had in this church and, and wanted to come down and teach um, by virtue of that. And he gives this sermon filled with some of the biggest smiles and the most joy that, that I'd seen in a long time. And then he gets to talking about his cancer towards the end. And he says this, cancer has become my pastor. Cancer is my pastor. And he said, how could I look at anything as bad that has taught me and mentored and shaped and grown my faith in God so much? How could I look at anything as bad that has done so much to grow me up into Christ and to help me understand and to learn the sufferings of Jesus and how that should shape my life and my faith as I walk on this earth. And I just, I, I remember, I mean, just sitting there thinking, oh my gosh, I've never heard something so profound, but he's right. His cancer has literally pastored him. And so Paul says, we're to be made new in the attitude of our minds. How we see all of reality. How we're willing to respond. Not saying that the things that happen to us have to be fixed. But recognizing the real thing is how we respond to what happens to us. Colossians echoes the same thoughts as this. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. There's a singularity to your heart, 
the state of your heart and the state of your mind that we're supposed to choose now to create for ourselves. We're supposed to choose this singularity of focus. We're supposed to choose to set our mind on things above. We're supposed to choose to bring that reality, the kingdom, into how we see everything else. We don't need a war to go fight to narrow our focus. Um, the idea is we're supposed to learn that the single greatest thing in all of Christianity, in all of life, is that we're supposed to love the Lord our God with our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength, with all of it, and that that, with his assistance, is supposed to narrow the playing field and focus all of our life to be lived out for his glory. So the last time I was up here, I said, we never give application at Antioch. We never give three points. And God's got a sense of humor. So here's three things. <laughs> First one is humility. Isaiah 26, verse 3. You will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. Really, what drives everything in the Christian life, we can talk about all the, the work side of it that we do, but really what drives all of that is the grace we get from God. Grace is underneath everything. We're all trophies of grace and sustained by grace. That's the beauty of the good news or the gospel. It's not just this one-time moment where we make a decision for Christ and he accepts us. It's the grace that comes there that continues to work in our life from that moment forward, changing us and making us new. We're all trophies of grace. And listen to that again. Isaiah 26, 3. What an amazing promise. You will keep God will keep in perfect peace him or her whose mind is steadfast because they trust in you. As we put our faith in God, God proves himself faithful. You see, there's so much about the Christian life that requires us bending a knee and being humble. As God said in Peter, uh, he brings down the, low, uh, the proud but raises up the humble. And with the whole justice thing, in that whole conversation, more and more I've been playing with this whole idea. I think we get really triumphal in this whole idea of justice. It's gonna, we're going to stand up and we're going to put an end to this. And we're going to fight that. And we should, right? But it's so active-oriented and so us-oriented that sometimes if we don't balance that, I think we get, um, we get off kilter. And so I think we should stand up for justice and we should sit down in humility, that's the corresponding element. And humility teaches us to listen, teaches us to learn, teaches us to, to hear the voices we might not otherwise hear. Um, it's this important reality of, of putting ourselves in the right position in terms of perspective. Yes, I might fix some things in this world. Guess what? I, I break just as many. I can, I can fly to some other country and be heroic. Um. But what am I even doing with my own marriage and my own kids and, and with the people in this town that annoy me? You, you know what I'm saying? So justice is less, I think, less about being heroic than it is about being faithful. It's le it needs to be less about being heroic and more about being faithful. And I think this whole idea of love, we do the same thing, don't we? Like love, man. Love, we know it's so big and so good. And yeah, the great commandment. Love God with everything. Yeah. And we're going to be radical and sold out and all that. I'm going I'm to be involved in church. I'm going to do the Bible studies. And I'm going to love God. And, and we get so action-oriented and so me-oriented that I think the first thing I would say with this whole love thing is just this. It, it begins with God. And it, and it works through God. And it comes back to God. And it, it really is his grace that's going to drive the whole thing. And we've got to remember that if we're going to be oriented to God, it's in this position, one of humility. God is never going to be big enough to take the sum total focus of my life if I'm crowding him out with other things that are, that are important or my own sense of significance. If I sit down at his feet and recognize where I'm at in the relationship and the dynamic, then maybe, maybe then he's big enough to really take over all of my life in terms of priority. And so it's got to start with humility. It's got to start with God, not with my own effort. So the first thing is just humility. The second thing is this. 
We need to change the paradigm. We need to change the paradigm. That, that guy's not supposed to be there. This isn't going to work, is it? I'm going to keep drawing and talking. And then if anyone sees scribbles, you can holler at me. If you see my scribbles. Um, how many of you have ever tried to map out your life and your priorities? You, uh, you, you go, okay, I got, um, I got my health. I need to put a, a bucket there for health. And I got my job. I'm going to put a bucket here for job. And I've got um, my family. I need to put a bucket there for family. And I, I have this hobby. I need to put a bucket there for hobby. Um, and you kind of do it all, and then you're like, oh, I, I also need God in my life. I, I need my, to nurture my kind of spirituality or my Bible study or my prayer time. Let me put a bucket here. And you kind of, you kind of add all these things coming off of yourself, like all that different aspects of your life. You know what I'm talking about? You guys have all done that, right? It's just, just like you all, I know you all lay in bed daydreaming about marathons or other things, and you're always the hero because we always daydream about being the superhero. Um, there's certain universal truths that go, cut across everybody. So, but we all frame out our life that way. And then you stand back and you're like, I don't know, man, that's, something doesn't look right here. It looks like God's one branch off of the tree trunk, it just doesn't feel right. Like he's one-eighth of what's going on in my life. And then you kind of scratch your head and like, I don't know how to frame this thing out and make it really work. And I think the, the thing that has to happen, and I think what Jesus is doing with this command is saying, listen, God's at the center. You start by putting God at the center. And then you branch out. You say, the job I do, that God has given me to do, that I'm a steward of, that provides for my family that God's given me, or my needs, or whatever. And then my health, for the body God has given me, the health that he's given me, and taking care of and stewarding that for his glory. And my friendships, or my family, that I have an obligation to nurture and encourage or protect, or to even enjoy that God has given me, that belongs to him, that I get to steward and be a part of. And my money that belongs to God, that, that comes through the intellect that he gave me, the family that he, he birthed me into, the, the jobs that he you know, created opportunity for, and that I get to steward and be a part of, and that I get to use for my enjoyment as well as serving and making a difference in this world or contributing. And you, you kind of branch everything off of God being at the center. And I think we really have to start to think that way is, is not how there's all these pieces to my life and God is one or church is one, but we say God's at the center and then all the different things that come out, how does that really look as I'm the one stewarding an aspect of my life that God has opened up or given to me? And I think changing the paradigm is an absolute necessity if we're going to really begin to say how does this filter into or color every aspect of our life. Romans 8, 5. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what, the, uh, what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. I mean, it really is a revolution of the mind that says everything that happens during the day, I'm filtering that through, God, what is your perspective on this? You guys have heard me say before that, that I, I have this quirky little habit of walking into my closet and just going, okay, God, what am I supposed to wear today? I mean, it's, it's really silly. Um, and half the time, I don't. I just, Tamara, <laughs> what am I supposed to wear today? Um, but even with restaurants, sometimes I'm like, God, here or there. Like, you know who's going to be there. You know what divine appointment you have. You know what, you know what I'm saying? Like, God, you know more than I do. And, and I'm really ignorant to a lot of what you've got going on in life. And everything that comes through me, every decision I can make, every volition, every choice, I, I want as best as I can to hold that up in front of you and say, do you have an opinion and if God doesn't have an opinion or if you don't, whatever, like you do the best of your ability with wisdom, right? 
But I want, I want to be supple enough to hear when God does have an opinion about something mundane or something that I wouldn't normally pray about when I, you know, go to some prayer meeting and we're putting our, our requests that we've prayed for a thousand times and the things that our life would be better if they fixed. And, you know, the mundane doesn't usually make it to that prayer list, right? And so it's our whole attitude and changing our perspective that's going to help us say, I want to filter everything through this lens. I, I want to I look at everything as belonging to God and seeing how if I choose to submit that to him, that he might be able to use me in my life. And the third thing is this, uh, understand and practice the spiritual disciplines. Um, this pad's not going to work. I don't know where Kip went. Is, is, is it going to? Right there. I told Kip before I am like, if this pad doesn't work, you've got to come fix it because I need the pad to work. Um, <laughs> uh, so the, the last thing is just understand and practice the spiritual disciplines. One of the most helpful things for me ever was reading a book called Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I've only mastered like two of the habits, and I'm not a very effective person. Um, but one of those was really intriguing to me was just a, a framework for understanding your time and how that gets broken out. Um, so I'm going to have to just forget the pad. Uh, I think this is very helpful, but Stephen Covey broke up time into four categories. And so if you just think of uh, four categories, and, and there's basically level of importance and level of Urgency, nice. Um, there's like a, see, I just figured out how to create a new page and get rid of that scribble. So Stephen Covey broke it up this way. All right, nice. So urgency, so you have urgent and not urgent. You have important and not important. So in this first quadrant here, urgent and important, um, you get in a car wreck and you need to go to the hospital, right? Um, you, you get a call that uh, your child's sick at school and you've got to pick them up. We always will do urgent and important. Um, you don't have to plan on it. You're going to do it. Does that make sense? That's what that category is. Then you have not important and urgent. This one's really interesting. Your cell phone. Facebook, if it's turned on on your computer. Things that, like, grab at you and feel, like, urgent, but they're not really important. You know, that phone rings and it's like you're in the middle of your kid pouring out their soul and you're like, you know, can, can you hold on one second? I've got to take this, right? I, I mean, it's just, it's this sense of, uh, of urgency, but it's not really important, okay? And then you've got this last, cat, uh, last category down here, or the fourth category, not urgent, not important. TV, habits like that, Right? It's, it's what we do or we kind of get in the habit of doing it, but it's not urgent. Like, it's not screaming at you. And ultimately, are you going to um, measure your life by how much TV you watched? Or, you know, I watched all eight seasons of 24, you know, and I still miss Kiefer Sutherland, you know, and Jack, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, you're not going to evaluate your life by that, but that's that category. This category up here, category number two, in, uh, not urgent, but important. This is the area of life that we have to frame our minds around. This is the area of life that, that spiritual disciplines come into play. It's not urgent, meaning it's never going to scream at you. It's never gonna, it doesn't have a ringer that's going to go off unless you create one. It's never going to anything, but it's the stuff that actually matters most. Time with kids. Um, Bible study. Prayer, service, 
Service fills you up more than the people you fill up with service, frankly. I mean, it's a spiritual act that fills you up. But you're never going to go, oh, only if I could serve right now. It's not urgent. One of the things I did when, uh, when I was working at that summer camp, I told you about talking to those junior hires. I created a beeper on a, a watch I had, and every hour it would chime. And it would remind me to stop and pray. And then after a while, I just didn't even hear the chime anymore. And so I tied, like, these things around my fingers. Because, like, tying a rope around one finger didn't seem like it would remind me of anything. So I, like, tied, like, two fingers together. And it was like, oh, I need to pray, you know. And, and uh, I tried to create these things that would, like, force me to remember to, to do what was important. What's amazing about it is when you create, like, some urgency things or you prioritize them, they slowly can become habits. And you begin to do them. But it's this, uh, the whole idea was Stephen Covey was saying, listen, we, we spend so much time doing what's not important. Um, and urgent, we can create some, some barriers so that the dumb urgencies that aren't important stay out of our life. You know, we turn the ringer off or put it on mute or turn your cell phone off or shut down your computer or whatever it is, right? But the idea is this, you know, you can plan to box out and you can put boundaries up so that you don't get shouted at with things that aren't important. This is going to happen, but you, the idea for Stephen Covey was highly effective people look at this category and they plan. They use their volition and their their intellect and their intelligence and their choice and their decision-making and their rationality, their, all of it, right? They, they decide, I'm going to love God with all my mind, which means I'm going to choose ahead of time. I'm going to plan ahead of time. I'm going to structure ahead of time that I'm going to find all of the, the time I can to put in this category and, and have my life be surrendered to God so that he has time in my day that he can use me. So that he has time that he can direct my steps. So that he has room enough in my schedule to take over and have me do what we would have me do. Because we can fill all of our time here and never get to what's really important. Matter of fact, we actually train ourselves to fill all of our time with what's um, ultimately not in that not urgent but important category. And that's where this kind of third application point is, is spiritual disciplines, prayer, solitude. Jesus used to take a night and go up on a hilltop and pray with his whole mind set apart unto God. Um, but the spiritual disciplines, fasting, which, which forces you to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to clear all the clutter in my life and try and be able to train my mind on God or on spiritual things or, or surrender myself or sit here in humility and try and reflect on God. But the spiritual disciplines that have always been a part of the, the, the faith, they're in Scripture, they've been a part of the last 2,000 years, we don't talk about them much. And so there are books that talk about it. You can go read, you can go study, you can go learn. But the idea is we, if you want to grow, it's just like in a gym or it's just like educa with education. If you want to grow in this area, it takes thought and it takes planning and it takes organization to say, I am going to impose my will on my calendar. I'm going to impose my will on my time. I'm going to create space and I'm going to learn how to discipline myself and do the kinds of behaviors that train me up into having the kind of mind that I want to have, the kind of mind that I can dedicate to God and say, if I take my mind out of my body right now and put it on the altar, God would be pleased with it. God would look at it and say, that sacrifice, your mind and your choice and your decision-making, you, that, what that is, that core of who you are, that aspect of you, if you weigh it out on the altar where things are put that are dedicated to God, if you, if you put it there, I would smile. I'd be excited because of what you've done with your mind and offering it to me. So in humility and with changing our, our kind of perspectives and paradigms and with spiritual disciplines, I would just pray and I would hope 
that we as a congregation would be able to love the Lord our God with all our mind. Collectively, we would find unity in that. And that if we actually could take it out and, and visibly put it before God, that it would be something that we could celebrate. Because as it said in Isaiah, and we'll close with this, and then Mike is going to come out. The ushers are going to take the offering. But as it says in Isaiah 26.3, I'll read it again. God will keep in perfect peace those whose mind is steadfast because of our trust in him. Father, grace begets grace. So I just pray you would give us a healthy measure or a healthy understanding of the grace that you so freely give to us. And love begets love. And I just pray that we would be able to wrap our arms around and know your love for us, that it would drive our love for you and for others. So I pray for grace. I pray for love. I pray that you would open our eyes wide. And I pray that you would have your way with our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.